So Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of our Lord. I'm sure you picked up on this, looking at this passage. If you haven't been in study of this passage prior to this morning, I hope you picked up on the obvious. Uh, This passage has uh, something for everyone to find offensive. Did you notice that? I mean, the Christian can be angered right there at the very beginning of our passage. Bless those who persecute you. Are you serious, Paul? And then in verse 19, never uh, avenge yourself, uh, overcome evil with good. And so the Christian might be angered by thinking that this is the kind of passage that makes me uh, feel like a bit of a doormat. Is that my existence as a Christian? Bless those who persecute me. And then for someone who is outside the church, someone who is not a believer, uh, they might be angered uh, at the very end These Christian people, here they are being told to do good only uh, for this one reason, that they're heaping burning coals on them. Uh, This is rather two-faced, isn't it, those Christians? But I knew it about them all along. Uh, They do good things just because they feel like they're heaping coals of judgment on others. And so there's something for everyone to find offensive. So a passage about living peaceably with all is actually a pretty disruptive passage. And I think that's what the passage is about there in verse 18 of the verse, uh, living uh, peaceably with all. I believe that's, uh, that's a central thought that Paul has in mind. But we need to acknowledge that the central thought is actually disruptive. It's the kind of central thought that can start fights, live peaceably with all. And we want to respond with, well, with most Or we want to know uh, on what grounds we ought to live peaceably with that man or that woman. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is that living peaceably with all is terribly challenging. And and really, both Christians and uh, non-believers can agree on this. Now, it might take a moment to kind of simmer down and uh, to uh, kind of step aside and uh, have a couple of deep uh, thoughts, deep sighs, but... Uh, There is a point of commonality in this passage between Christians and the non-believer. They both can acknowledge that in many ways, living peaceably, if I'm honest with myself, is rather challenging. Both the Christian and the non-believer should know at least that much about their own hearts. Living peaceably with all, that is challenging. But the Christian ought to acknowledge this for a slightly different reason. 
Because one of the one of the benefits of Christianity is that God tells us who we really are. He is the maker of humankind. He knows us. Uh, he was there at the fall. The fall is the result of a transgression of no one's will but God's will alone. Christians know their heart. Scripture tells them about their heart. Christians understand the polluting power of indwelling sin that is constantly with us. And so while in a quiet moment both Christians and non-believers can acknowledge that living peaceably with all in verse 18 is quite a challenge, Christians, well, it ought to be just a little bit more personal for them. Before diving into this passage, some uh, have called uh, these uh, verses a loose collection of exhortations. Uh, Some good commentators do that. Uh, In my experience, and I hope in yours as well, Paul always has an organizing principle of some sort, even though we're looking at a passage that, uh, on some level, it feels like a loose collection of exhortations. The organizing principle is our need for God's grace that actually enables us to live lives in service to him. Go back to the beginning of chapter 12. We are called to be a people who are living sacrifices. Every aspect of who we are belongs to God, and he calls us to be an appropriate sacrifice, a sacrifice that is holy and blameless before him. And so, uh, to be living sacrifices is to give everything to God and to uh, live in this world in such a way that we fight against, against the world's uh, desire to conform us to its pattern. God is unrelenting. He expects us to be holy before Him and He expects us to be available to Him such that everything that we have belongs to Him. And at the same time, we also know from the beginning of Romans 12 that none of this is possible without God's grace, a grace that lives with us, a sanctifying grace that is always present with us in the indwelling Holy Spirit, the kind of grace that, according to God's will, enables us to live holy lives in this present age. Calvin says that the Christian, uh, over time, learns to no longer uh, live, but to hear Christ living and reigning within them. And that is what a Christian is called to, to, over time, no longer live themselves, but to hear Christ living and reigning within them. And so slowly our minds and our lives are renewed to more and more conform unto the image of Jesus. So, uh, there is the setting of our passage, but none of that again happens without God's grace. And, and this is what Paul has said in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. God graciously distributes gift among the members of his church body so that by grace uh, those members are enabled to use those gifts for the church body at large. And verses 9 through 13, uh, individual members in the church are addressed that, uh, such that in their inner lives, uh, their genuine love, rejoicing, and hope, uh, again, gifts of God's grace, that those inner lives would be, ba- be made uh, public, that they would exhibit themselves in their relationships with others, such that genuine love and rejoicing and hope, by God's grace, uh, become outward expressions of brotherly affection and meeting the needs of others. And so to hear 
And we're looking at God's grace work in hopefully extraordinary, unusual circumstances. Thus far, the passage has been describing the life of the church in ways that we find agreeable. But here, we're challenged to look at the life of the church in extraordinary circumstances. Circumstances when there seems to be great friction in the church body. And when that friction arises, how will God's grace operate? There's the setting for Paul's exhortation here. That God's will is for his grace to be exhibited in our life together. And here in this passage, God's grace is exhibited in a people who love peace and live peaceably with one another. That's how God's grace is exhibited in these extraordinary circumstances in the life of the church. And uh, Paul seems to be uh, using uh, two different dynamics, and he plays off of these two dynamics, pushing them up against one another so that we might see how God's grace is exhibited in our desire to live peaceably with one another. The first half of the sermon is uh, about verses 14 through 18. Paul, in essence, says, do your part to live peaceably with all. Do your part to live peaceably with all. But then verses 19 through 21, I'm going to argue, are very honest and ought not be neglected. Yes, I understand, Paul. Uh, Do my best to live peaceably with all. But what about when they're not doing their best to live peaceably with me? That's what I want to know. It seems like an unholy question, and yet Scripture is so honest. God is so kind to us. And Paul addresses that in verses 19 through 21. When they don't try as hard as I am to live peaceably with me, Paul says in 19 through 21, resist vengeance. Well, so there you have, you have these two uh, poles that are in many ways bouncing off each other. But let's begin where Paul begins, verses 14 through 18. Do your part to live peaceably with all. Uh, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Notice that Paul is not saying just uh, think peaceful thoughts. He's admonishing them to live life in a peaceable fashion. He's calling them to do, to work, to make an effort, to live peaceably with all. Now, this is one of those skills that requires a multitude of smaller abilities. I remember uh, my stepdad teaching me how to uh, uh, play baseball, how to, how to bat. And it's not a matter of going up to the plate with a baseball bat and just swinging when the moving object passes before you. It seems so simple. There's a myriad of little steps where you place your feet, how you hold the bat, uh, the grip on the bat, uh, a million impossible little details, which is why I never learned how to bat. Now, Paul seems to have uh, something, uh, something like that in mind as he doesn't say simply live peaceably with all. He actually gives us these little uh, details. And that's, uh, that's where we begin in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. This is a part of what's required to live peaceably with all. You see, the uh, immediate temptation is to define persecution uh, so that uh, it is something that is uh, minor. Surely Paul doesn't mean uh, persecution. But we also might think that this uh, refers to something that is uh, enormous, something that only happens, uh, uh, is only committed by non-believers to uh, believers. That word persecution is really, uh, really tricky for us to get a good feel for in verse 14. 
We want to think that if this is happening in the church, then he must mean by persecution something super, super tiny, minuscule. And then, of course, you can bless someone who persecutes you. Or you want to think about persecution as something that only happens outside the church. It's a, it's a powerful uh, opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of persecution Paul is talking about. But then you run in with, well, how do I, how do I bless them when they do that? This is one of those passages where I wonder if Paul is being pretty, pretty deliberately vague. The word for persecution, really at its heart, it refers to a striving against. And so Paul says that when individuals are striving against you, but it could also mean hunting you down to kill you. It's, it's pretty hard to figure with what intensity Paul is using this word. And, and I suppose we ought to allow uh, both uh, a gentle striving against us and then a mad pursuit to kill us. I just don't know how grammatically to uh, avoid considering uh, both. But we ought to consider a couple of things. We ought to consider this. Uh, keep, in mo- keep in mind that Paul, he's primarily speaking here about life within the church body. He's mentioned in verse 10, uh, affection towards brothers and towards sisters. He's mentioned in verse 13, uh, uh, meeting the needs of the saints. That seems to indicate that Paul is here talking about the church body. Certainly verses 3 through 8 are entirely addressed to the church body. Uh, God uh, gifts the church with various abilities to be used for the whole body. Now, if that's happening here in this passage, if Paul is primarily talking about life within the church, what do you think about this question? Is there persecution then in the church? Do you ever feel persecuted in this church? We can skip forward to verse 20 in our passage. Is it it possible that uh, you can have an enemy, that's in verse 20, within this church? And the context up to this point has been all about life within the church. There's one glimmer of hospitality towards strangers, but it's all about the church. And, and I think it's important for us, as we're honest with the text, to assume that Paul means that there is a kind of persecution we feel in the church. Uh, people striving against us in some way. And that there is a kind of uh, enemy in the church. Whether it's legitimate or not, uh, we, we, we feel that there is uh, an enemy uh, force in the church. Now, this is why I said these are extraordinary circumstances, but when we talk about arguments that happen in the church, don't you feel persecuted? When we talk about uh, bitter arguments in the church, uh, don't you feel like you have some uh, enemy against you in the life of the church? Now, really, what Paul is doing here, I mean, certainly he's testing us, he hasn't ex- explained exactly what he means by persecution and Emily, uh, enemy. But he, he's pushing us, isn't he? But he's also being very, very faithful to Holy Scripture. Paul here is simply quoting Jesus. He's going to quote Moses as well, but he's simply quoting Jesus. That Jesus promised to his disciples that they would experience persecution. Jesus even commanded them in the Sermon on the Mount to love and pray for those who are persecuting them. Paul is not going to be shy about applying the inspired word of God to life within the church body. 
Just think about Paul's own life. Paul knew that there was great friction in some Christian congregations between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And this friction could become very ugly, even calling leadership in the church body from outside the congregation to speak in to uh, the great uh, war within the church between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, Paul knew that some Christians would push him and argue with him when he challenged them with regards to uh, their, uh, their holiness before God. They would fight with Paul. Think of the church at Corinth. Believers, people whom he had, he addresses as saints, but boy, they're pushing against him. And we know that Paul himself was occasionally betrayed by Christians. Some of them are named uh, in Scripture. Uh, people who were working alongside him, but then fight against him, uh, leave uh, leave him, refuse to minister alongside him. It may be that this is a call for us to be pretty honest about life within the church. We uh, might uh, think of any number of scriptural examples, but I think of the Galatian Christians whom Paul says there are people in the church who are forcing them uh, to become circumcised like other Christians. Now, I don't mean, I don't think that Paul is saying in Galatians 6 that it's physical forcing, but compelling people, you must do this or God won't love you. Now, we're going to make our way through Romans, and when we get to Romans 14, all of this is going to become evident. Paul is going to say that uh, in churches it's not unusual for people in the church to be so attached to their personal opinions uh, that they're going to judge one another and despise one another. It's going to happen inside the life of the church, Romans uh, chapter 14. Now, I would ask you, do you occasionally feel as though a Christian brother or sister is striving uh, against you? I think it's okay to admit that. Sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I even feel as though this person is my enemy. They're out to get me. I need some kind of response. Well, Paul says if you feel uh, that a Christian brother or sister is striving against you, uh, he says bless them twice. He's really saying eulogize them, uh, sing praises over them, be kind to them, uh, love them. How in the world is that going to happen? How will that happen if I feel like this person is just contending with me? They won't listen to reason. They won't listen, perhaps, to Scripture. Paul says, bless them. Now, you can rile at that, and I can rile at that. But in your imagination, don't you know that if this were to happen, wouldn't it be a glorious thing to behold? If only more people in the church would give one another a bounty of grace... If only more people in the church would simply refuse to be offended by their brothers and sisters, would would think best about the intentions of their brothers and sisters. I mean, can't you at least even imagine that? I can imagine that. All of us should imagine that. It ought to delight us. It ought to delight us. With that in mind, think about that. People striving against you, can you bless them? It might be hard. It might be a real personal debate. There might be some history, some past there. But God knows, and this is Holy Scripture. But even your imagination tells you, wouldn't it be beautiful, beautiful if everyone did that? 
and he moves on. Again, these are just small, these are small details that, that help coach us uh, to what it looks like to live peaceably with all. In verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, finally, a breath of fresh air here. Uh, this actually sounds pretty easy. You know, ever since the preaching ministry of John Chrysostom in the 5th century, good scholars have noticed from him that isn't it interesting that Paul would have the rejoicing bit in front of the weeping bit? Word order in uh, the Greek Bible matters. In, in Greek and in Latin, word, uh, word order is a way of emphasizing. And John Chrysostom, a great preacher, he says, now wait a minute, why do you think Paul would begin with rejoice with those who rejoice rather than weep with those who weep? Doesn't it seem like the, the weeping bit is uh, more needful? But John Chrysostom says the rejoicing bit is actually the hard part. And I agree with him. I agree that that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the rejoicing uh, with the rejoicing of others is more challenging because it's challenging to celebrate uh, other people's successes because we're so tempted to covet. Why aren't those successes in my life? And perhaps Paul may be allowing that we do sometimes feel persecuted simply by the great successes of others. I work hard on this person. Better educated in this person. People like me better. And yet that's happening to them. Why isn't it happening to me? It may be that Paul wants us to entertain in verse 15. It's related to verse 14. That really to rejoice with those who rejoice is a matter of exiting ourselves so that we are uh, rejoicing uh, sincerely with them. And the same thing happens when we are weeping with those who weep. We're we're exiting ourselves from uh, the things that are happy and delightful in our lives that we might truly and sincerely weep with our brother and sister. Both are required. We have to leave our, our own hopes and dreams and our covetousness that we might truly rejoice with what God is doing in another, another believer's life. And Paul goes on, verse 16, live in harmony. Uh, this is literally to set one's mind on others, uh, to, to think as they think. This is, uh, I think, verse 16, a, a helpful way is to, is to consider that this is an emotional uh, living in someone else's shoes, getting outside of your own world and uh, setting your mind on uh, their world. This living in harmony in verse 16 seems to be a favorite expression of Paul's. He knew that there was occasional disunity among Christians. This happens at Philippi. And, and what Paul says to the Philippian Christians is he actually insists upon them to, 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 to agree with one another in every detail. Be of one mind. Have the same spirit, Paul says in Philippians 2.2, 2, to a church that's filled with disunity. Live in harmony. You think as your brother or as your sister thinks. And he says in verse 16, associate with the lowly. And so finally, Paul says that Christians are not to be haughty. They're not to be lofty or tall. They're not to, to elevate themselves o- over others. And nor does Paul say that Christians are to be wise in their own sight. They're not to be wise in their own sight. And what he seems to be doing is he's uh, playing off a family of Greek words that have to do with uh, how you think, uh, especially how you think uh, about others. And here in verse 16, he's saying, don't think too highly of yourselves, just as he's already said to think about others uh, with regards to harmony. And then he adds in verse 16 to associate with the lowly. What do you think that means? 
The commentators are actually in disagreement as to what he means by lowly. It may mean to uh, pursue humble activities, the kinds of jobs that are demeaning. It could be that Paul is saying, uh, by associate with the lowly, saying work alongside those who are doing jobs that everyone agrees are pretty demeaning. Or it may mean uh, something a little, may mean that and beyond. It might mean to befriend and enjoy the company of those whom the church body agrees are poor and destitute. Perhaps even a hard for whatever reasons to be around. Paul says not only work alongside them, but to befriend and enjoy them. Now you put all these things uh, together. Uh, All uh, four of them help to describe what it means to uh, live peaceably, to bless those who persecute, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to live in harmony, and to associate uh, with the lowly. And then finally Paul comes to verse 17, which is really where he began in verse 14. And he says in 17, repay no one evil for evil. You know, that word for repay is basically the word for persecute. He's saying, don't re-persecute someone. If you feel that someone is persecuting you, don't do that again to them that you feel is being done to you. Don't re-persecute. But again, really what Paul's doing is he's quoting Scripture. It's very hard for a minister to look at this passage and and have to to say to the church body and say to myself uh, these hard things, that there can be such a thing as this kind of disunity and friction in the life of the church. It's hard to say. But Paul, it seems as though he's meditating on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5 and Luke 6. And as he meditates on the Sermon on the Mount, there are some strong implications for the kind of body that a church body ought to be. And Jesus seems to be saying very clearly in Paul's mind, he's saying very clearly to the Roman Christians that when someone does you badly, don't re-bad them. Someone strives against you, don't re-strive against them with an equal force. And all uh, all of these exhortations, they actually hang together. That living peaceably with others requires a, a new response to persecution, a, a, sympath, a sympathizing in the successes and the griefs of others, a, a thinking about others almost more quickly than you think about yourself, and then a, an association, a close association with those who everyone agrees are actually hard to associate with. All of them hang together, uncomfortably so. They all hang together. Now, I want us to think that this is a great connection point between us and non-believers. And one of the, uh, the great negatives for me when I was a new Christian was being a Christian while uh, living in a life of the church. I knew church people. Now, those ch- church people were a large reason why I was avoiding Jesus Christ, wanted nothing to do with them, because I know church people, I don't like any of them, and I don't like the relationship that they have with one another. It was a big deal for me. And when I became a Christian, it was hard to, it was hard to make myself a part of the church. Well, now, I'm not like that to this day, praise be to God. But I'm not like that because of a work of God's grace. Acclimating me to the life of the church. Giving me a hunger and a delight to be with my brothers and my sisters. I, I, I admit I don't have the same uh, hunger and delight to, uh, to be uh, absolutely impossible, impossible to offend. 
And I do find it hard when I feel as though people they're striving against me, or I feel that uh, this person is is uh, an enemy of mine. They don't love me, but I do love the church, and I know that about me, and you should know that about you. Why? Well, it's part of your holiness, but but one reason is that it gives you an opportunity to uh, be able to address non-believers when they say, "Boy, that church, what a ragtag group of people! What a ragtag! There's no way I would associate with the church." That's why I don't love your Jesus. And we as Christians, we can actually agree with them and say, boy, I'm right there with you. A tough body to love. I get it. Paul would actually uh, agree. Yeah, the, the, tru- the, the truth of the matter is, is the church is really hard. It's difficult. But, you know, the truth of who we are and the truth of what the church is, the Bible is very clear. The Bible tells us that. That's why one of the reasons we love the Word. We're sinners, and all of us are in different stages of growth and maturity. You look just at Romans chapter 7. It seems as though Paul struggled with the sin of covetousness. And Paul admits that the Christian life is just very difficult. And I want to do this, and I end up doing this. But the truth of the matter is, uh, Paul has already announced to us that Christians are growing in grace by different rates. Well, that's just a recipe for disaster when you throw all those people together. Divide them up according to spiritual maturity. They're surely going to get along far better. That's not the church. The church is a community that's not based upon volunteerism. It's not based upon pragmatic organization of souls. The church is a, is a, is a gathered together by virtue of Holy Spirit possession. Churches gather together because of God's work deep inside of us. The, quirk, the, the connection is a work that is done not by us, like it's a, it's a hobby, this church life that I have. The connection is a work of the triune God, converting us and bringing us together, that we would be together right here, and that we would struggle alongside one another, that we would mature at different rates. What a recipe for disaster, and instead it's a recipe for beauty, because our Lord and Savior died. For the church. And so as Christians, we're, we're commanded to, to champion these outrageous acts while at the same time we agree with our uh, non-Christian uh, friends and neighbors. Yes, the church is hard, but God has commanded us to champion outrageous acts. When we gather together, we actually desire to confess our sins to one another. We desire to be reconciled to one another, even if it hurts. We uh, gather together in the pursuit of peace, even with people for whom we wouldn't ordinarily be with. We are gathered together often, whether we want to or not. We're here Sunday morning that we would participate in the life of the saints. And we want to acknowledge what the world sees in the life of the church. But we also want to hold out the great grace that we have in our Lord and Savior. You see where Paul takes us. To 19 through 21, what do we do when they're not living peaceably towards me? And Paul says, look, you, you, you resist vengeance. You know, so Paul is assuming uh, in verse 20 that there is such a thing as someone whom you think is an enemy to you in the church. And we need to be real careful here, I admit. They may or may not be enemies. They may or may not be striving against you and opposed to you. It may be here in verse 20 that Paul is uh, helping us uh, size up who our enemies, who we think our enemies are. But in a sense, it doesn't really matter. 
Because what Paul knows about us is that our temptation is to, in some way, exact vengeance on them. And that word vengeance, technically it's a courtroom word. Vengeance means uh, metting out some kind of punishment. It may be a legitimate punishment or an illegitimate punishment, but vengeance is actually rolling out that punishment to someone. And what Paul does when he talks about vengeance is he actually goes back in time uh, to uh, within the story of redemption to the time of Moses. Remember that after the Exodus, Moses, uh, his uh, day in, day out time uh, was filled with exercising judgment. Just look at Exodus 18. Day in, day out, Moses exercising judgment, exercising judgment, exercising judgment. And to a man like that, who is actually called to serve as a judge in the disputes of the people, to a man like that, God says, yes, you're exacting punishment. But vengeance is mine, and I will repay. That's, so, that's in Deuteronomy 32. It's so important to notice that. You see, Moses himself was called to exact punishment as a judge of God's people. And yet God tells that one man, you can do that, but don't forget this. Vengeance is really mine. And Paul, uh, Moses' realization of that, I think, is what's behind Exodus chapter 32, where... Moses is able to do just the impossible. Uh, Moses comes down off of the mountain, and we know what they're doing. Uh, the people are building uh, or, or uh, gathered around a golden calf, worshiping a golden calf. And yet it's this man, Moses, who was told, vengeance is mine. Literally what Paul is saying here in verse 19 is, is leave your vengeance at the door. Leave it alone, because vengeance is mine. And what does Moses do when he comes down off the mountain? Something that's absolutely remarkable. He implores the Lord to turn from his anger and to remember his covenant and to be merciful to the stiff-necked people. How is he able to do that? Vengeance is God's. I think we begin to see uh, how it is we're going to be able to live peaceably with one another. In our desire to exact punishment, we need to be pretty careful, don't we? We need to know that we are relying upon God's word and God's word alone. We need to know that we are acting upon God's express authority. But Paul, he doesn't even allow us to park there. Exact vengeance only if you have the right scripture verses. Paul, Paul doesn't allow us to park there. Paul says this, leave your vengeance at the door. And replace it with something else. This is what verse 20 is about. The vengeance is left and it's replaced by what? It's replaced by kindness. Food for the hungry. Something to drink for the thirsty. Now this, this reference to food and drink. I, I want to make sure you're not thinking that it's a reference only to dire needs. It's not. There's no textual evidence that would tell us that. It's only related to dire needs. So, yes, if someone is about to die, even though you're, they're your enemy, you ought to give them some food and water. Yes, that makes sense to all of us. That's fine that that makes sense. That's not what Paul's saying in verse 20. It's not that kind of kindness. It's the kind of kindness that any normal person would expect that's not the kind of kindness that's uh, only the result of dire circumstances. It's normally uh, normal food, normal, normal drink. Now, Paul goes on to say something that's hard. Uh, what, what about the result? What's, this, what's, what's going to happen? And he says that you, in doing so, you're going to heat burning coals on, on his head. 
Let me just be very clear. I don't know what Paul means here. There's a whole lot of people a ton smarter than I, and they also don't know what Paul means here. You know, that, that phrase, uh, heaping coals on head, uh, occurs nine times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and, and usually it refers to some kind of harsh judgment, judgment of some sort. But John Calvin, when he looks at this passage, he says, well, it clearly can't be that. Even though you have instances of it in the Greek uh, Old Testament, it's not a, a heaping judgment on someone. We've just said we're leaving vengeance to God. I'm not the one who affects judgment. Only God does that. It's not that. In, in fact, Calvin says that kindness is the context of verse 20. Uh, in what way is heaping coals on a person's head an act of kindness? Calvin says it can't be an act of judgment. But then he doesn't go on to say, well, what is it? That's unfortunate. One Dutch scholar says that the heaping of burning coals uh, may actually be something that is good. It may may be a desirable thing. It's just worded uh, a little funny. That uh, hot coals are something that a house needs to survive. And so uh, Herman Ritterboss says that perhaps the burning coals are themselves an act of kindness, but it's hard to tell. We do have examples in Scripture. This This is where I've parked. Uh, where our goodness will sometimes result in a person being ashamed. That here they were, haughty and awful, wicked, hateful, and yet a Christian person reached out to me and was kind to me. And there's a kind of shame that can result from that kindness. That may be what Paul is talking about, but it's still unclear. But what is clear is this, that killing our own sense of vengeance is critical for our personal holiness. And that replacing that sense of vengeance with acts of kindness is also critical to our Christian walk. But again, these things are crazy. These things are impossible. But that's the point of all of these sections in Romans chapter 12. Yes, it is impossible. But with God's grace... This is the very thing that makes the church look beautiful. God's will is for his grace to be exhibited in this way. So often we think that the church makes the the biggest footprint on the world stage by, by engaging in great missiological efforts, doing big things, creating big organizations, numbers, 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 numbers. So often we think that that's how the church has a large footprint in this present age. But just look at what Paul's telling us here. The footprint of the church is small stuff. Living peaceably with one another. Setting aside your sense of vengeance. <laughs> is that a big footprint in the life of the church or is it small? On the one hand, it's small. It's so minute. It's, 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 it's one by one. Individuals living, peaceably, individuals living peaceably with one another. So on the one hand, it's small. But I will say to you, that the lack of peace evidenced in the church in Eagle River, Alaska, was by far the main reason why I refused Jesus Christ for four years of my life in Alaska. That church just seemed so ugly to me, and I wouldn't go anywhere near Jesus. I'm sure the church wasn't as ugly uh, as I thought then. I'm sure of that. 
But I want us to live as the kind of church that knows that it is evangelistic for us to live peaceably with one another. And your refusal to set aside your anger and your vitriol to a brother or sister in the church, you need to think about that. And I need to think about that. The way we care for one another, that's precious in God's sight. Our ability to set aside our vengeance and uh, and, and and give... Uh, uh, Tons and tons of grace to our brothers and sisters. Well, that's what God expects in the life of the church. What do you think you're here for? Well, so let's, let's do this. Let's be quick to admit our sin to one another. We're not as sinless as we might think. And let's be quick to, ab- to obey God, even when it seems as though others before us are not obeying God with the same verve as we are. And let us also be quick to turn over the results of uh, this to God, that uh, he will be the one who uses our uh, peaceableness and our unity in the life of the church for his own glory. Quick to admit sin. Quick to obey God quick to turn over the results to God. But let's also acknowledge that we can't do any of this apart from that which God has already done for us. Our God loved us so much that He sent His Son to do what? He sent His Son to place our wickedness upon His own shoulders and to exact God's rightful vengeance. And that son did that for us. And what you think might be precious, your ability to be right in an argument, or your ability to exact uh, vengefulness on a person to repay to them, you feel rightfully for what they've done to you. (laughs) That desire is nowhere near as precious as you think. Not when the vengeful one exercised that vengeance on someone else. Let's be quick to admit sin. Let's be quick to obey God even when others seem not to be. And let's be quick to turn the results over to God. May we do this by his grace. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a church that lives peaceably with one another. Would you, Heavenly Father, do this? by your grace, and for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.